Ravi Zacharias, uh, I'm sure most of us, or many of us at least, know who he is. And he tells this amazing story of a young Christian in Vietnam. Now, this is a Vietnamese Christian, and he writes, Zechariah does, he writes, I was ministering in Vietnam in 1971, and one of my interpreters, this is the Vietnamese gentleman, his name was Heen Pham. He was an energetic young Christian. He had worked as a translator with the American forces. He was of immense help both to them and to missionaries such as myself. Now this is Ravi speaking. Heen and I traveled the length of the country. We became very close friends before I returned home. We did not know if our paths would ever cross again. 17 years later, now listen to this story. This is amazing. 17 years later, I received a phone call. Brother Ravi, the man asked. Immediately, I recognized Heen's voice, and he soon told me a story. Shortly after Vietnam fell, Heen was imprisoned on accusations of helping the Americans. His jailers tried to indoctrinate him against democratic ideals, against the Christian faith. He was restricted to communist Propaganda, both in French or Vietnamese, and the daily deluge of Marx and Engels began to take its tolls. Maybe, Heen began to think, I've been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. Maybe the West has deceived us. So Heen determined that when he awakened the next day, he's not going to pray anymore. He's not going to think of his faith any longer. The next morning arrives. And he was assigned the dreaded chore of cleaning the prison latrines. This is amazing. As he cleaned out a tin can overflowing with toilet paper and urine and feces, his eye caught what seemed to be English printed on one piece of paper. So he hurriedly grabbed it. He washed it, and after his roommates had retired that night, he retrieves that piece of paper and he reads the words, quote, Roman chapter 8, trembling. He began to read, and he's reading this passage. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. For I am convinced that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as he was reading the scripture on a piece of refuse, a piece of used toilet paper, he began to weep. He knew his Bible. He knew that there was not a more relevant passage for one who was on the verge of surrender. He cries out to God. He asks God for forgiveness, for this was to have been the first day that he would never pray again. But then he found the scripture. Heen asked the commander if he could clean the latrines regularly because he discovered that some official was using the Bible as toilet paper. And each day, Heen would pick up a portion of Scripture, clean it off, and added it to his collection of nightly reading. And what his tormentors were using for refuse, the Word of God, 
It could not be more treasured to Heen. Eventually, he was released from prison. He fled to Thailand. And today, he is a, bus- he is a businessman in the United States. He's a radiant Christian, and he's living a testimony to the power of God's word and its transforming work. That's amazing. And it makes me want to ask each of you the same question that I'm asking myself. And I would ask you to deliberate with this. I would ask you to think on this and to answer this question. Truthfully, just how much do you value God's word? Do you have utmost confidence in the reliability of the scriptures? Do you have total love and confidence in the validity and the relevancy of God's word? The answer to that question is seen in what are you doing every day with the Bible? Now here's my guess. Some of us rightfully should be feeling conviction. Some of us rightfully should be feeling that burn in your chest, your heart, your spiritual center. Because we're undervaluing God's word. We're underutilizing God's word. And it betrays something that we don't want to admit, but it's true nonetheless. We really don't esteem it high enough. Because if we did, it would be evident. We're going to dial in the microscope today in this series in Jonah. We're going to look a little more closely at the power of God's Word. We're not going to make much forward progress. We're going to drill deeper. And we're going to pick it up in the new year, this series in Jonah. And we're going to see the effect that the Word of God has on the city of of Nineveh when we get to the new year. We're going to see the spiritual transformation that took place. But listen, today, right now, we're going to look at the living Word of God and its power. And I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Now listen, this is why I'm telling you every single week, please, please, please bring your Bible to church. Please start getting in the habit of it. And get it open in front of you. And dig deeper with me into the Word of God. Don't settle for your electronic one. They're very difficult. Believe me, I have a tablet, I have a computer, I have a smartphone. They all have a very extensive, powerful Bible program on them. But it's very difficult to put in notes. It's very difficult to retrieve those notes when you need them. Not so difficult when you've got the paper version of the Bible in front of you, and there, 10 years from now, you're going to leaf it open and you're going to find these notes. So let me encourage you, bring God's word to church and mark it up. It will mark you up. Verse 3 of Jonah chapter 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. Now we're going to stop there for a little bit. We're, not, we're really not going to make it very far 
today. Verse 4, first part of it, that's as far as we're going to make it. But I want to go a little bit deeper with you, and I want to start by teaching you that the Hebrew language, and really the Greek language for that matter, neither of them really have grammatical tools like bold and italics and underline and exclamation points. They don't have them. Listen, if you're seeing that in your Bible, that's the translators putting it in there to emphasize it. But in the original Hebrew, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament primarily written in Greek, rough koinonia, country street Greek, not the high classical Greek. It was made to be accessible to the common person. And then there's a little Aramaic in the New Testament. So in the Hebrew language, we don't really have exclamation points. You don't have italics. You don't have bolds. You don't have underlining. You know, you don't have what somebody did for me so helpfully when they sent me an email and they were pretty upset with me and they wrote the entire email in all capital letters. I kind of got the point. The Hebrew language doesn't have that. So in order to underscore, in order to emphasize, in order to really draw attention to what the Hebrew writers wanted to be known, they had a couple different tools. You ready? Here they are. The first tool that they had First literary marker, if you want to use that, were adjectives. They used a lot of adjectives. Adjectives describe the nouns. You see this in verse 2. So go back to verse 2 for a moment. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Look what he says. That great city. And then you go to verse 3, we just read, and it amplifies it. This is what the writer's doing to underscore how great Nineveh was. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. So do you see the crescendo in the adjectives and the descriptions for the nouns? That's one of the ways that the Hebrew writers, these were literary markers. They're communicating something. you got to pick it up. It's a crescendo in its adjective. But there's another tool. Right? The first one was adjectives. The second one is repetition. So now you go to verse 1. The word, underline it, if I were you in your Bibles, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, verse 2. Call out against it the message, I'd underline it, that I tell you, verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. The repetition is telling you what the lack of exclamation points can't. This is really about the word of God in a very, very lost, massive city of people. The word of God is powerful. It is beautiful. It is soul-consuming to the saints of God. David wrote, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. How many times do we say that? How many times do our hearts hunger and love God's word? 
How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Listen, our God's word is the Bible, is the Holy Scripture, better than the pleasures that you could get in this world. Are they better than the sensualities that are available? Is it consuming your love? Is it grabbing your affection? It should to the saints of God. Listen, if you're not growing in your love and your confidence of God's word, I'm going to tell you, you're growing backwards. You're not staying the same. You're either growing or you're going backwards. You're either getting hotter in your love for God or it's waning and it's getting colder. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. How do you value not your Bible? Because you can go buy another Bible if you lose it. Not the particular paper copy of it. How do you value God's word? How do you hunger after God's scriptures? Is it consuming your soul? Are you a saint running after his word? Now listen, let that conviction come if it's coming to you because you need it. It's a beautiful story that's told of a young French girl who was born blind. And after she learned to read by touch, a friend gave her a braille copy of Mark's gospel, second book in the New Testament. And she read it so much. Listen, she's reading with her fingers the Gospel of Mark. She's reading it so much that her fingers became calloused and insensitive. So in an effort to regain the feeling in her fingers, she began to cut the skin from the ends of the fingers. Tragically, however, her calluses were replaced by permanent, more insensitive scars. Now, listen to what this young French girl does. She sobbingly, she was weeping when she gave her gospel of Mark written in Braille a kiss goodbye. She put her lips to it and she kissed it goodbye because she realized she could no longer read it. And she said, farewell, farewell, sweet word of my heavenly father. When her lips touched the braille of the gospel of Mark, she discovered that her lips were even more sensitive than her fingers had been, and she spent the very rest of her life reading the great treasure of God's words with her lips. Can you imagine what your life would be like, brother and sister, if you had that appetite for God's word? If it raged and captured your soul. The amazing word of God came to Jonah. And this amazing word would be what Jonah would preach as he, quote, went to Nineveh. Nineveh was massive. It was, I'm throwing out synonyms, gargantuan. Huge is an underscore statement. In fact, it was the biggest city on the planet at that time. It wasn't yet, but it's going to be soon the capital city of the Assyrians. It's going to be in about 50 years. So you've got experts who differ in 
the size of Nineveh, but all of them, archaeological evidence substantiating it, all agree that Nineveh, Nineveh was exceedingly large. It contained a zoo, a public, several public squares, parks, botanical gardens. It had its famous library known throughout the world. There was the central city. It's kind of like Atlanta. We lived in Atlanta. We actually lived in metro Atlanta. Nineveh was a lot like that. There was the central city, like Atlanta is. And then there was what's similar to the metro Atlanta, the surrounding larger perimeter. Listen, that's vital to Nineveh. That's where the farms, that's where the factories, that's where a lot of the suburb and the agricultural and the agrarian and the rural people of Nineveh lived. They supported all of this massive city, the infrastructure for it. So imagine the large perimeter being 60 miles in circumference. That's what most agree it was. 60 miles. That's pretty big. The walls around the main city, they've discovered, they've dug them up. Archaeologically, they know they're eight miles around. So you've got the inner city, eight miles in circumference. And then you've got the outer city, 60 miles in circumference. This is massive. This is huge. The walls were 100 feet high, wide enough for three chariots to ride side by side, had 1,200 towers spaced around that wall, and each of them were 200 feet tall. The palace, listen, you go into the inner city, and you go to its epicenter, and you're going to find the king's palace. That covered 100 acres. This is huge. This is massive. It was an exceedingly great city, verse 3. And your Bible might have a footnote. Take a look for a second. Does your Bible have that? Your Bible might have a footnote that says a very important city. It could be either a very important city to God or a very great city to God. It doesn't matter. Whatever it means, size is in view. The NIV makes it clear. It's a, a visit required three days. So my understanding is that the city had so many people in need of saving that it was very important to God. Here's our prophet Jonah. Now watch, look at me for a second. He's armed with the word of God. He's unprotected. He's alone. Jonah went a day's journey into the city and he called out, Friends, is the word of God enough in your mind? And I want you to really answer that. Is the word of God enough? Or is it the word of God plus strategy? Is it the word of God plus stories to make it more palatable and interesting? Is it the Word of God plus your genius at interpreting and translating and applying it? So it's the Word of God plus your efforts in giving the application. Yes, that's what changes people. Listen, is your confidence in the power of the living Word of God? Or is the Word of God plus? See, there's a lot of people that lost their confidence in the Word of God. There's a lot of churches. They rely on the worship 
They sing U2 songs. They rely on really creative artsy expressions, which all of them are good in and of themselves, or they can be, but if it betrays a lack of confidence, it's not enough that the Word of God changes people. You've got to have the Word of God plus what you add into it through your own efforts. Now you've got a problem. There's others who believe that a church, if it's to grow, has to be God's word plus organizational principles. You're not going to get there just by preaching. You're not going to get there by just faithfully adhering to the word of God. You've got to really be able to organize the church. Friends, I've determined in my life and in my ministry that the governing rule for all things is going to be the Word of God, and all my hopes are invested in it. I had a young man recently tell me that he believes many parts of the Bible are no longer relevant to modern life, justifying why he has no interest in it. So when I asked him, do you read the Word of God? Is the Word of God something that you go to? Do you have your confidence in it? That's what he said. Well, I don't think it's relevant. There's a lot of parts in it that have nothing to do with me. And I said, well, why do you think that? Why do you believe that? Well, they don't make sense. I said, all right, well, we're going to keep meeting, right? Yeah. You want to keep meeting, yes, okay. Well, how about then every time we meet, you just bring me two of the parts of the Bible. You've got a lot of them. Just bring me two parts of the Bible that you think is irrelevant to your life. And how about we just talk through them and walk through them and explain them and we'll see if they're irrelevant or not. He said, all right, I'll do that. I can't wait. This is going to start in the new year. Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he said of John Bunyan, quote, the man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and you're going to find that the very essence of the Bible flows from him. John Wesley, oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. The Bible, Martin Luther said, is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. These are godly men. They made massive contributions to the kingdom of God and they all had one common denominator they thoroughly loved and were confident in God's word so into this massive city 60 miles in the outer perimeter circumference eight miles in the inner 100 acre courtyard for the palace here comes Jonah he goes a day's journey in he is armed with nothing but God's word and the people of Nineveh, verse 5, believed God. Isn't that amazing? Nineveh didn't have a puppet ministry with them. Nothing wrong with it. Nineveh, or Jonah rather, didn't have a puppet ministry with them. Jonah didn't have a worship team with him. And if you know me, you know how much I love worship music. More guitar, the better. Jonah didn't have a team that went ahead of him and a team that stayed behind him to both prepare and to disciple and to get them ready. Jonah had nothing. It was Jonah and God's word. They were a partnership. That's all he had. That's all he had. 
Matthew 24, verse 14 says this, and this is Jesus, and this gospel of the kingdom will be of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, are you interpreting that right? Kevin King's got it right. The missionary that we saw? They're going after people groups. Let me read again. This is Jesus. I just forgot to put it in red letters. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The word of God has got to get around the world, and then the end will come. You're getting the sequence, right? The end will not come until God's word makes it around the world. And when God's word makes it around the world, the end will come. This is Jesus. And then he takes you forward in Revelation and says, See, what I told you is right, because there in chapter 7, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, this is the Apostle John speaking, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Listen, this is the scene in heaven. This is the worshipers in heaven. There's some representing every single tribe every people group because the word of god made it around the world so where are we with this global research i would encourage you to get online and take a look at it yourself global research does a lot of work in this kind of data Eleven thousand five hundred and fourteen people groups in the world that's how many people groups they they have estimated and the latest data from the global research organization tells us that the number uh, that of that number of the 11,514 6,825 they are unreached so there's 11 and a half thousand people groups in the world and of that number 6,825 almost 7,000 of them have not yet heard the gospel, here's how you define an unreached people group. 2% of the population in that people group is comprised of Christians. If you've got less than 2%, that's an unreached people group. And there's almost 7,000 of them on our planet. And of that number, there are 3,139 people groups that have never even heard the good news that Jesus Christ can save them. So you've got almost 3,200 of the 11,500 that have never even heard of the gospel. When the word of God makes it around the planet to every single people group, then the end will come and there will, will be one day a great worship scene in heaven of which, Christian brother and sister, you will be there where you will see people worshiping in every tongue from every tribe, from every people group. But there's a lot of people groups to go. For those of you who believe that the end would be there tonight, that the rapture can come tonight. I have, I have a problem with that, biblically, because I hear what Jesus says. We're not doing our job. And primarily, I think, I believe, the reason that we're not doing our job, we don't trust the word of God as the means to save, the only means. 
So take that information that I just gave you, ask yourself, how does anybody, how does anybody, a people group or an individual person, how does anybody get saved? you got to stop at Romans 10 for the answer. And then we're going to get back to Jonah, and we're going to watch it in action. Here's what Romans 10 says. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be saved, will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him, him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. That's what good news means, the word of God. So you're ready to watch this. Look at the verses while I explain it. I'm going to reduce it for you. I'm going to put it into a flow. Unbelievers cannot call on the Lord unless they believe. That just makes sense, right? You're not going to call on the Lord to save you unless you believe God can. And they cannot believe unless they hear, and they cannot hear unless somebody preaches the good news, and those who preach the good news must be sent. Now preaching, now watch me, look at this, this is huge. Preaching does not mean what I'm doing right now behind a pulpit. That's one form of it, that's not even the major form. It's, it's preaching, but it's explaining. You explaining in a diner with a napkin. Showing the problem with sin, opening up a chasm between a holy, righteous, impeccably sinless God. Who can cross that chasm? Well, your good works are going to land you in it. And the only bridge is the cross, and Jesus created that bridge by dying on that thing for you. You can draw that on a napkin. It's explaining that's what preaching is. It's teaching, it's sharing, it's testifying. It's what the non-believer needs to have in order to believe and be saved. Listen, if you've got an unbelieving friend and you want to see them get saved and you keep saying, well, I just got to get them to church. Well, that's good, but really what they need is your beautiful feet bringing them the good news of the gospel and loving them enough to see Jesus save them. Preaching is what Jonah did. Look what it says. He called out. That's what it means to preach. And he called out the message that God told him to give. And what happened in Nineveh is this. The Spirit of God took the Word of God and breathed spiritual understanding and life into the enemies of God. The Spirit of God took the Word of God and breathed life into the enemies of God. That's how people get saved. And these enemies of God, by the way, they were the worshipers of the false god Naboo. These enemies of God, now they began to believe, and they began to have faith, and faith brought with it salvation. Why? Because Jonah preached the Bible. He preached the words of God. And that, my friend, is the power of God's word. King David said it this way, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. The word of God brings life. 
When your soul is so dry, it's so emaciated, it's so spiritually dehydrated that you don't know if you're going to make it another day, get to the Word of God and let the living God's living Word of God get into you. It will bring life. Peter wrote it this way, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, that of which a, a mom and a dad create. You're not born of perishable seed, born again of that, but, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This is the life-giving, inseminating power of God. And when it gets planted into the soul, it is good news. And when, it brings, when faith brings it alive, it pops through the surface in faith and belief and salvation. Paul said it this way, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's the word of God that is your hope, and it's all you need. If you're ready to get on mission, Christian brother and sister, then take with you God's word. It's what you need. It's everything you need. Billy Graham, you know what Billy Graham said? This is so interesting to me. He was asked a question by an interviewer, what he would do differently if he had his life to live over again. Now listen, Billy Graham, I'm here today preaching because of Billy Graham. My father got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. And my father raised us in Christ. So Billy Graham, I love him. He's a hero. I can't wait to meet him. I have met him once. I can't wait to meet him in heaven have a lot of talk with him. But what would you do different, Billy, if you could live your life over again? Here's his answer. One of my great regrets is that I have not studied enough. I wish I had studied more and preached less. People have pressured me into speaking to groups when I should have been studying and preparing. You know what he wanted to study more? It was not the latest book on the Christian bookshelf. It was God's Word. I remember precisely and exactly the night that the ember of desire in my heart for the Word of God caught hold and roared into a flame. I remember exactly that night. It was a night that I've shared with you before, but it might be worth repeating. I was a little boy. And I had grown up and haven't grown up with a love for comic books. Man, I loved superheroes. I could not... I, I, read them voraciously. My imagination was all over the place. I loved comic books. I loved superheroes. And I was going to bed and I was reading God's Word because I wanted to, this is why I was reading God's Word, I wanted to read about Samson, super strong Samson. But my Bible didn't have a concordance and my parents had gone to bed it was 10 o'clock in the evening, and I remember this so clearly. And no matter how hard I searched, I could not find the story of Samson. I remember looking at the clock. It was 10.05 p.m. I was thirsty. So I got out of bed, and I went to the kitchen. I brought back a glass of orange juice. I laid back down. It was on my left side. Listen, this is eerie in clarity of my memory of this. I laid down back on my left side. I had been reading with my right hand, turning the pages. I put the juice on the dresser next to the bed. I laid down and found and discovered and realized my Bible had fallen down the ground. I reached down. I remember with my right hand, brought it back to my bed where I was lying on my left 
left side, and there automatically opened where it had fallen open on the floor was Judges 13, the story of Samson. Now, I can't, I can't even underscore this, and I, I, may, I hope you trust me that what I'm telling you is real. This was very vivid in my life. It felt electric. From my head to my toes, electric. Just went through me in a heartbeat. And with that jolt, with that shock was the realization that God did that. Now, the skeptic could say, come on. I know God did that. And because God did that, what he spoke into me, which was the electric power and the warmth of his voice and his word, not audibly, in my mind, what jolted through me is God takes pleasure when I take pleasure in his word. He really likes that. And it touched off a two-year span in my young life where I read the Bible cover to cover in the morning, in the evening. I could not wait to go to bed to read it. I would not start my day without it. I studied it. I learned God through it. And it began to bit by bit shape my life and transform me. And what settled into me during those two years, was a supreme confidence and commitment that the Bible is the living word of God. It is all of my hope. And it's enough. I believe the two greatest efforts of the enemies of God that they've exerted against Christianity are in their attempts to discredit God's Son, Jesus Christ, and to demolish God's Word. Listen, they have never succeeded in either of those, and they never will. The French writer Voltaire tried it. He, he gave his best effort. He was acidic in his hatred. He was a, a philosopher. He was an avowed atheist. Voltaire was. He boasted, listen to this, he boasted that within 100 years of his lifetime, Christianity would be swept from the earth. 50 years after Voltaire died, his own printing press, his own house were being used by the Geneva Bible Society to produce Bibles and export them in languages around the world. That's the enduring power of the word of God. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, the psalmist says. And most of us, by the way, most of us are familiar, right, with the Pony Express. We've heard about it. It's been oft romanticized in its contribution to the history of the Old West. But for all of its glamour, the Pony Express was a business. It was run like one. Here's how it was run. To ferry mail across the open expanse of the western territories, the express route ran 1,900 miles from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California. 1,900 miles. The trip was made in 10 days using 40 men who each raced about 50 miles, riding a total in that 1,900 miles of 500 horses to get there. So to conserve weight, 
Riders wore very light clothing. They rode on extremely small saddles. They carried zero weaponry. Their mail pouches were also compact. They were lightweight. Letters cost $5 an ounce for postage. Yet for all of these efficiencies in terms of weight, now listen to this, one thing was never sacrificed on any Pony Express rider. Every single rider carried a full-size Bible. In fact, it was presented to him when he joined the Pony Express. This is the power, this is the necessity, this is the reliability, the beauty, the wonder of God's word. All flesh, Peter wrote, is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, Peter said. Jonah goes into Nineveh. And I'm going to very, very much give you the baseline population number. It had at least 600,000 people in it. Many believe many more. It goes into a city of 600,000 people, 60 miles big in the outer perimeter, 8 miles big in the inner perimeter. He goes in there a day's journey. He doesn't have a guard with him. He doesn't have a weapon on him. Only weapon he has is the powerful living word of God. And he preached it. He called out. And it was enough. It spawned and sparked the greatest revival that has ever occurred on this planet before and since and all he did was preach the word of God how confident are you in the word of God it will be evident in your life so how much do you love it how much of your life are you spending in it so that it can get in you and bring transformation and certainty of your faith and growth and maturity, moving you from drinking the milk of the stories of Samson to eating on the filet of the doctrines of Paul? Do you love the Word of God? Are you confident in the word of God? Is your soul consumed by the word of God? Friends, can I please close with this exhortation? Please listen to me. If you have realized in the course of this message that that is not you, please fall on your face and repent. And confess, God, I have not loved your word. I am not consumed by your word. I am not confident, relying only on your word. Fall on your face and confess it and repent. And ask the God of the living word to pick your soul back up. And do in you what he did in Nineveh. Give life, robust life.
we're going to see the power of Jonah's preaching, the power of God's word as it brings that greatest revival in human history. It's going to move each of us to ask ourselves just how important is God's word in our own lives. Amen?